Hello everyone, welcome to episode 101 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I'll be your host today. Today's episode is all about William Cuffey and the Chartist movement and I think it's going to be a two-part episode. So in this episode we're going to talk about his early life uh, and upbringing. We're going to talk about the 1834 strike which I think falls perfectly after episode 99 where we were thinking all about industrial action today uh, in modern times but we're going to take it all the way back to the 19th century this week um, we're going to think about the chartist and the chartist movement and what they stood for um, and what they hoped to achieve uh, in 1838 with the people's charter um, and William Cuffey's role within the movement and some of the work that he did um, as a chartist and in his earlier life <laughs> The majority of information for today's episode comes from two books in particular, African and Caribbean People in Britain by Professor Hakeem Adi, as well as Peter Fryer's Staying Power, which I reference all the time on this podcast. And speaking of both those books, they feature in the 100 episode giveaway that is currently running on the History Hotline Instagram. So if you haven't heard about that or checked that out yet, please go and do that. If you are listening maybe after this has been published or after a few weeks after it's been published, then it might not be running anymore. It's running uh, until the start of April 2023. So if you are listening to this well into the future, I'm sorry that has passed. Um, But if, you know, it is within the time, please go on Instagram um, and enter the giveaway. You just need to comment your favourite episode, tag three friends in the post um, and share it on your story. And you can be in with a chance of winning um, six books, I think, um, as well as a selection of exclusive merchandise from the History Hotline that has not actually been released yet, um, as well as some cakes from Bougie Bakes Cakes. And now on to William Cuffey. So William Cuffey was born in Chatham, Kent, although his first biographer claimed he was born on board a merchant ship. He was one of five children to a formerly enslaved man named Chatham Cuffey from St. Kitts and a local woman named Julia Fox. Now, records show that his grandmother, a woman who is on record as Linda Myra Cuffey, as well as his father, were both baptised in Chatham in 1772, suggesting that three generations and maybe more of his family were from that area. It was said his grandfather was, and I quote, an African dragged from his native valleys into the prime of his manhood, Um, end quote. It suggested that they kept their connection to Africa through the surname Kofi, which they were able to keep um, when they, uh, as a family uh, and the generations before, um, arrived in St. Kitts and then in Britain. Um, Chatham was an area that had an important naval dockyard um, of which... Cuffy's father, William Cuffy's father, Chatham, um, was a dockyard worker and a cook on board a Royal Navy ship. Now, at this time, this kind of whole Navy element of this episode is important because Britain was literally waging war on the whole world, um, which isn't really uncommon in their history. Um, but it was trying to expand its reach and subsequently the empire um, and its status as a global force. And so just a selection of, of the battles and wars they were in. They were at war in the Caribbean with the enslaved Ashanti people and Jamaican Maroons in Taki's War in this period. There was the American Revolutionary War at this time. They were part of the French Revolutionary Wars. 
Um, there was a second Maroon War in Jamaica, the Anglo-Spanish War, an Irish Rebellion in 1793, the Fourth Zosa War, the Hundred Days War in the early 19th century, um, moving forwards a little bit. Of course, the Napoleonic Wars that wrapped up around 1815. Um, and yeah, as you can see, that that list is not the whole list. That is a selection for you, a selection of the wars that were going on um, in this kind of period of the late 18th century and early 19th century. It was a time of significant battles, meaning that naval grounds were extremely important and significant places um, in 19th century Britain. By the beginning of the 19th century, the black British population ran into the tens of thousands. I think it's estimated around 15,000 um, at a point in the early 19th century, um, which often goes kind of unrecognised and unmarked as we look at mass migration to be a 20th century thing in the post-war era. Um, but many of this population, unlike that of the um, people that migrated to Britain from the Caribbean, let's say, in the 20th century, had actually been born in Britain. Um, of course, they were marginalised by racism and often poverty as well. Um, opportunities for the black population um, were really concentrated on sailing. They were still the cogs in the wheel that was British imperialism um, or domestic service oftentimes. Essentially, very little um, difference to the roles they would have occupied um, as enslaved people in Britain only a few decades earlier um, when the transatlantic slave trade was still happening uh, and enslavement was quote unquote legal. Um, essentially, you know, black people um, within Britain at this time, and a lot of them would have been what we now define as being mixed race, um, they were still in positions and roles that meant that they were having to, um, you know, support the naval forces or support the domestic services of very wealthy people in Britain. Um, William Cuffey grew up in this setting. Uh, he started off as an apprentice to a tailor. This gave him more agency than most. Um, and his story is a little bit different maybe to the average person that would have, um, inhabited Britain in this setting at this time. Um, he was able to move to London in 1819 to ply his trade. However, ended up entering politics in 1834 after an unsuccessful tailor strike in support of improved wages and conditions. People have literally been striking since, I'm sure, the beginning of time. Um, this phenomenon that we think is a phenomenon now, or some people do, uh, in the modern day is not. And William Cuffey was there in 1834, um, striking for better wages and conditions. It failed in the sense that they were not granted improved wages and conditions. Um, and at this time, it meant Cuffey actually uh, lost his job. Um, and his lack of employment saw him become truly invested in politics, especially the politics of working people at the time. Um, he was small in stature and is said to have had undiagnosed rickets. Um, and he's kind of reported and spoken about as having a deformity due, due to a shortened spine and legs. However, it said, and I quote, he took great delight in all manly exercises. Um, like many, he lived in some poverty um, and his first two wives actually died within a first, their first few years of marriage, um, of which I assume um, to be ill health. Um, and so there isn't really too much about them as, as, you know, they weren't really alive for too long whilst married to Cuffey. But we do know that in 1819, he married an Anne Marshall, who died in 1824. 
And then a year later, he married an Anne Broomhead, um, and she died in childbirth in 1826. Their only daughter, Anne Juliana Cuffey, was baptised at St Mary Magdalene's Church in Gillingham, um, but she also died shortly afterwards. And then he marries a third time in 1827, and... <laughs> I really expected her name to be Anne, and it kind of is because it's Mary Anne. Um, I don't know why, but William Cuffey had a thing for Anne's. Um, and so for the third time in 1827, he marries Mary Anne, and she's quite a big part of his story um, as a chartist herself. And we'll get onto a little bit more about her in this episode later on and in next week's episode. So back to those strikes, the Taylor strikes of 1834. As I said, he lost his job and in the aftermath of the strike, he was blacklisted and actually would never find regular employment again. But he had been charged up. He'd been propelled to take further action. And by the time the first Chartist petition had been presented to Parliament in June 1839, William Cuffey decided to join the cause. So this wasn't something that he started. It wasn't a movement that began with him. It actually um, began uh, with MPs um, and people that kind of were, I guess, full-time in politics, um, not Cuffey. But he joins this cause, um, splitting from the Liberal Party um, to be part of the Chartist movement by October 1839. Um, he was also one of the organisers of the Metropolitan Taylors Chartist Association, which, um, you know, is coming from his um, job as a tailor and his call for better working conditions um, and for better pay. Now, you might be thinking at this point, well, who were the Chartists? What was it all about? Uh, I mean, I'm going to get into that now. So, Chartism was arguably the first major movement of working class people in Britain, which emerged in 1836 in London. It expanded rapidly across the country and was most active between 1838 and 1848, which is a period we'll be looking at this episode and the next. Their aim was to gain political rights and influence for the working classes. Their demands were widely publicised through their meetings, pamphlets and their petitions and there was one particular petition populated um, at Chartist meetings across Britain um, which was brought to London in May 1838 for Thomas Atwood, an MP, to present to Parliament. They worked to gain um, support for their cause um, through, you know, working class uh, people that were employed in a variety of fields. Um, and in 1838, a People's Charter was drawn up for the London Working Men's Association, the LWMA, by William Lovett and a Francis Place, um, two self-educated radicals um, in consultation with other members of the LWMA. And the Charter had six demands. And I'm going to go through the demands because... Um, I remember learning about these in school um, in terms of looking at um, universal suffrage. And I thought it was interesting that they've come up again because I used to always ask a question in my history lessons like, you know, oh, were there any black people in this? Like when I thought about the suffragettes and that kind of thing. Um, and no one ever told me about William Cuffey, um, this mixed race man that was such a big part of this movement. Um, when I was learning about this. So I just thought it was quite interesting that this kind of um, charter that I had learned about prior, um, and don't get me wrong, William Cuffey wasn't really that active as a chartist when this charter was being written up. Um, he joined kind of a little bit later on in the movement, but, you know, his name was never referenced um, in regards to this really large and 
original movement for working class people in Britain. Okay, so the six points of the charter, the six demands, all meant to have the vote. Um, Voting should take place by secret ballot. Parliamentary elections every year, not once every five years. Constituencies should be of equal size. Members of parliament should be paid and the property qualification for becoming a member of parliament should be abolished. I'm going to go through those individually because the thing is, the system we have now, whilst in many ways is imperfect um, and not really that representative in my personal opinion, um, the system that has, you know, was there in the 19th century was even worse than the one we have now. Um, And these kind of movements to change the system when we think about politics, you know, are really, really important. And I think we take for granted the system we have now. Democracy hasn't always looked like this. Um, And it's interesting as the current government bringing things like voter IDs and, you know, a lot of policies that might be unfavourable to some. um, It's interesting to see how voting reform has kind of happened over time. Now, This idea of universal suffrage, the right to vote. Um, When the Charter was written in 1838, um, only 18% of the male population that were adults in Britain could vote. So only 18% of the population, um, the male population, so that's not even the women. They're not involved at this point. There's like no chance they're getting the vote. This is like 100 years too early for them um well not not a whole hundred maybe about 70 60 um yeah so only 18 percent of around half the population can vote how is that representative in any way shape or form um and before 1832 it was only 10 percent so this charter proposed that the vote would be extended to all men all adult males over the age of 21 except for those that were um declared insane or convicted of a felony um so that would have been extending voting rights to more people still not to women um it would have been for men over the age of 21 um which you know is still far off from where we are now where everyone can vote over the age of 18 still not people that are um in prison though the second point was the property qualification um and it meant at the time potential members of parliament had to own property and it had to be of a particular value which meant that the vast majority of um, well the population really couldn't really um, become MPs or stand to be elected as MPs um, because they weren't wealthy enough essentially so obviously as you can tell this means that upper class people have um, a complete hold over politics and the political arena and it's not a space for working class people because they don't qualify on the basis of their um Uh, assets uh, and the things they own and as we know assets tend to be passed down from generation to generation so that just keeps a certain set of families very wealthy property owning um, and able to be part of politics and to make changes and impact the lives of the rest of the people in the country even though it's literally a majority working class place well you know the working class is always a majority in any country but this kind of small propertyed upper class can run the show The third point was annual parliaments instead of once every five years. Um, And this meant that governments could keep power as long as there was obviously a majority of support. And it made it difficult at the time for them to replace a bad or unpopular government. It sounds really familiar to me. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, they wanted annual parliaments. Um, The fourth point 
was the idea of equal representation in regards to constituencies. Um, in 1832, there was a reform act which abolished this idea of pocket boroughs, uh, which was a parliamentary constituency that essentially was owned by like a single patron who could basically control the whole borough and essentially decide the two members that were going to represent their borough in parliament because they had so much control um in some of these constituencies it was like six people or so that could elect two members of parliament because of the sizings and the shapes of the constituencies so that meant that six people had such influence and when we think about a, a the people they're nominating um and voting for being so wealthy these people could just buy votes essentially um and the second point or the last point we're going to talk about is this idea of voting by secret ballot um it wasn't done in a secret before so you knew exactly who was voting for you and you could make sure that your investment paid off because you watch them vote so the Chartists proposed a division of the uk into 300 electoral rural districts um, and they had like equal numbers of people living in those areas um, and it meant that there would only be one representative for each district to sit in parliament which is obviously a little bit more uh, like what we have today um, and the system that held up um, so the fifth thing was a payment of MPs. They were not paid uh, for the work that they did at the time. Obviously, they're paid now. Um, but it meant that people um, obviously couldn't become an MP unless they were wealthy because you would have to have had some like earnings to survive. Um, and so you would either need to have just be very wealthy to become an MP um or you couldn't do it because you weren't going to get paid for it it was like voluntary work who can afford to do voluntary work people already have money um and essentially the charter was proposing that mps get paid an annual salary of 500 pounds um in order to make it more accessible to people that were not just rich or from the upper classes or wealthy to become mps and to also have some influence in the political sphere um something again that we have today so i think one thing I will say, and as I read these all out, um, it's quite interesting to note that a lot of the things that the Chartists wanted are things that we have embraced wholeheartedly in our political system today um, and have done for the past, well, over 100 years um, in most of these cases. Um, and so, you know, it, it's hard to understand how much they were fighting for this at the time because things were so different and these are things that we might take for granted for today. Um, but these were literally things that people were so against. They were happy with the system they had that represented pretty much wealthy people and allowed them to keep control of Britain. The sixth point um, that the Chartists wanted was a vote by secret ballot, which I've already touched on. Voting was done by showing hands in public, as in you'd all sit in a room, um, and it was called hustings, um, where there would be a public platform, candidates uh, for parliament would be nominated, and then the people, obviously the wealthy people that were allowed to vote um, and of the age would go and vote, um, but it meant that all the people, everybody could see how you voted, not just the people you were voting for, but your friends, your family, landlords, employers, they could see how their tenants and employees were voting, and it just meant that there was like no kind of uh, privacy in regards to voting and your vote could be bought and they could check on their investment. Um, and also, you know, it was just probably quite uncomfortable for a lot of people that may 
have not wanted to vote for a certain candidate but had to because everyone was going to see a no um and i'm sure it caused a lot of problems um it wasn't made secret voting until 1871 which probably gives you um a kind of taste of of what happened to this chartist um list of demands in their petition the petition i will say you know had more than a million signatures 1,280,958 names written out it was three miles long the petition was three miles long let that sink in three miles I don't think I've walked three miles for a very long time three miles long (laughs) with over a million names and Parliament voted not to even consider it. Of course they wouldn't. Like, it's not in their vested interest to at all change the system that benefits them, um, which is what we see now. The vote wasn't even close, to be honest. 235 votes to 46. 235 nays to the 46 A's, as they say in the uh, one of the houses. House of Commons? That's the one. Um, the Chartists were very disheartened after that as you would be you know a three mile long petition do people even do that anymore three miles long of course we do all our petitions online um for the most part today but the the idea of it is just crazy to me um but they did continue to campaign um for the six points of the charter and actually produced two more petitions to parliament in the years that followed now i'm going to wrap this episode up thinking about what William Covey did within this movement and then we're going to go next week and look at what happened in 1848 and how William Covey ends up in Tasmania exiled. William Covey joined the Chartist movement in 1839 and emerged as one of the dozen or more so prominent leaders of the movement. He was not the only black Chartist at the time but he was one of the first. In autumn 1839, Coffey was helping set up the Metropolitan Tailors Charter Association um, and about 80 people joined on the first night. In 1841, the Westminster Chartist sent him to represent them on the Metropolitan Delegate Council and in February 1842, Coffey chaired a great public meeting of the Tailors at which a national petition to the Commons was adopted. He was elected to the National Executive of the National Charter Association in 1842 and later that year, Uh, voted president of the London Chartists. He was appointed chairman of the committee for managing the procession, responsible for making sure that, and I quote, everything necessary for conduction of an immense procession with order and regularity had been adopted. Whilst he was often described and known to be quite mild-mannered, he was known also as being very militant, and his militancy earned him recognition in the press of the ruling class. He was in favour of heckling at meetings um, of the middle class complete suffrage movement and the anti-corn law league. The press was often racially charged uh, and Punch lampooned him quite savagely uh, and the Times often referred to the London Chartist as, quote, the black man and his party. Um, And as a direct result of this press campaign, his wife, Marianne, who I said we'd mention again, um, was sacked from her job as chairwoman 
She was also an active and very popular chartist. This also led to Coffey being known to carry a loaded pistol due to the way that he was being attacked in the media. Um, and he would carry that with him at all times and this would come back to haunt him in the future. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Um, Coffey made some of the most radical speeches um, at conventions, openly denouncing some of the leading chartists who were more cautious. He was part of the movement um, that really condemned what the government were doing, the injustice, the cruelty of it, and the way that they were exploiting working-class people. He was very militant in his desire to see change um, and really didn't suffer fools. And by the fools, I mean the people um, that were kind of higher up within Chartism and of the um, you know more wealthier classes that were kind of half-hearted in their uh, approach to change. Um, but, you know, as I've said before, he was racially uh, targeted in the press. He, of course, was a black man and racialized so in Britain. Um, and, you know, the way in which he is often presented uh, in press at the time really does lead to some problems. And it really does lead to him having a quite a large target on his back. And this target puts him in a lot of problems um, as we get into the 1840s um, and 1848 in particular. So that is all we have time for this week. We will be finishing the story of William Coffey and just going to find out how he ends up in Tasmania, exiled. Um, unfortunately, it is a sad story, um, but we will get to the end of it next week. So thank you so much for tuning in. Check out the giveaway on Instagram for 100 episodes if the time is still right. And I hope you have a great week. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. The History Hotline is hosted by Deanna Lynn Cook. Research is done by Zakia Riaz. To continue the conversation about Black, British and Caribbean history, follow us on social media at The History Hotline on Instagram and at The History HL on Twitter.